is afraid of the big bad wolf. If you asked me when I was a child, I would have said, uh, me. (laughs) The big bad wolf is one of the first antagonists we meet in our childhood. But as I grew older, I began to wonder if he was really that big and bad. Perhaps he's even necessary. Let's suppose Little Red Riding Hood just skipped her way to Grandma's house all la-di-da. Where's the story in that? Memorable stories need memorable villains. And so today on Little Voices Big Ideas, we'll explore the role of the villain in children's stories and how the whole good versus evil thing can be both useful and maybe even a little problematic for the kiddos encountering big bad wolves in their lives. Let's go deep into the woods and beyond the bedtime story. Tell me again how the people tell their stories and who did what and where and when. Uh huh. Mm. I'm joined today by Helen Taylor. Tell me. Hello. Tom Wartenberg. Nice to be here again. And Freddie Evans. Great to be here. And together, we are going to be discussing another big bad wolf, that of the Three Little Pigs. Everybody knows the story of the Three Little Pigs, right? We all know the story uh, about the the wolf trying to blow the houses down for some unknown reason, I guess, to eat the pigs, right? It's so interesting that the big bad wolf seems to be ubiquitous in a number of different stories. Sometimes he's a wolf, sometimes he's a fox, sometimes he's a coyote. And anthropomorphism, treating animals as if they're humans who can make decisions and talk and so forth, is often an easier way to explore some of these big themes about good and evil. It's much easier to talk about a wolf and pigs than it is to talk about two different kinds of human, for example. It gives us a sort of safe distance. In The Three Little Pigs, clearly the wolf is bad and the pigs are innocently defending their homes and suffering the awful fate that will befall them. But there are some contemporary children's versions of this story, most notably one we'd like to talk about today called The True Story of The Three Little Pigs, by John Cheska. But in this version, it's necessary that we understand who's the villain and, uh, and who are the good guys, because this version revises the story. It reverses who's good and evil, or at least it tries to. Because in this version, uh, the wolf tells us basically that he was framed, that he was only going to borrow a cup of sugar to make a birthday cake for his granny, And the very hostile pigs insulted him, insulted his grandmother. And of course, he reminds us that big bad wolves uh, have things like pigs and fluffy bunnies in their diet and that therefore he's only behaving in the normal way that a wolf would. And at the end, we see the wolf with a long grey beard. He's been incarcerated, sent to the big house for the longest possible sentence and still asking us to believe his story. So one of the questions for all of us reading it is, do we believe this version rather than the traditional version? Tom Wartenberg, do you have anything to say? Yeah, I think that's a very interesting question. I think one of the things that's interesting about that is that here we actually have the wolf talking to us 
and trying to justify what he did. He knows that everybody is thinking he's evil, but he's saying, hey, you don't really understand what went on. And he presents a story in which he innocently interacts with the pigs and they've been killed through a coincidence, basically. And he eats them because they're already dead. He's not killing them in order to eat them. So he's trying to show that he's actually the innocent uh, and that a story has been concocted through a newspaper who's trying to sell papers and they've created what they know is a false version of the events. For me, what happened is that I started thinking back to the original story and I suddenly started thinking since the new version is clearly told from the point of view of the wolf, from whose point of view is the original story written? It's basically the pig's version that that they were innocent victims and this big bad wolf attacked them. So we have these two different versions with very clear different perspectives. And so I think what happens when you read the newer one is that you have to decide, do I agree with the version the wolf's trying to present to us? So Freddie, do you, what do you think about this story? I mean, is the wolf successful in persuading us that his version bears out the facts? No, I don't think he's effective at all. I agree with Tom that his intent was to redeem himself, to sort of make his plea of innocence and to establish some kind of credibility for himself. But when we look at both versions, he's simply a bully. He's a bully in the first version for sure, and equally so in the second one. He intimidates the pigs, and he creates this false cough or sneeze only when he doesn't get his way, only when the pigs don't allow him to enter their houses willingly. And he proceeds to push himself on them, as bullies do. So I think that his attempt to redeem himself is not effective. It does not work. I think there's an interesting question of how do we decide which of these versions is the correct one, right? Because that's that's an interesting issue that goes way beyond these books. When we have competing versions of reality, how do you find some sort of standard to use to judge that one version is better than another? This has been a real problem for philosophers who... Uh, there have been a lot of arguments that basically whatever standards you use are always in one version. So you can't get outside of a version to look at both of them objectively. Um, But with these two stories, is there some way for us to say, oh, look, here's the definitive thing that we need to recognize. And once we see this, we'll know that this one version is truer than the other. I think one of the reasons why I like reading this book or why I've liked reading this book with my boys and why they like it so much is um, it allows us to have discussions about the, the problem of goodies and baddies. Who says, who says who's bad here? And how do we know when someone's bad? And to take it one step further, what happens when we divide Uh, people into or judge people by being good or bad? That raises a question for me about the sorts of stories that we've been talking about, these fairy tales, where we do have a sort of simplistic categorization. I think, you know, the use of the animals is just a way of 
making it easier to make those judgments because there's certain animals that are sort of scary and there's certain, well, this, I mean, I'm not sure pigs are at least cuddly, but little baby pigs are actually, but, um, <laughs> you know, it gives us an opportunity to discuss these types of categories and these category schemas and to say, you know, it's, it's really problematic to think of the world as made up of good people and bad people. Um, and we're the good people and they are the bad people. So maybe in fact, we could see these as sort of morality tales, but they're ones that we want to criticize mm. for their simplistic understanding. I think that reminds me that the function of uh, some of these um, folk tales and uh, fairy stories, whatever you want to call them through the centuries, was to advise and warn. I mean, there clearly mm-hmm. was a time when it was important for children to learn that wolves were big and bad. I mean, look at the story of the boy who cried wolf, for example. And so I think you're right, Tom, that we, we've internalized so many of these tropes. And so it's great that we have a contemporary generation of children's storytellers willing to revise these stories. I and mean, we talked about Fanny's Dream in an earlier podcast and how that revises the story of Cinderella. And this one, which revises the story of the Three Little Pigs. So we've got the original version and its function. And then we've got our contemporary applications of some of those same themes. Something occurred to me, Tom, as you were talking about the categorization of characters, and I'm wondering, are there common characteristics? So if you were to put, say, the wolf and the pig, is there a commonality? And that's sometimes what we have to do when we're talking about people. What are the commonalities? What are the common goals, the common ideas that we could possibly share? I don't know if there are any. That just occurred to me. Is there anything in common? between the pigs and the wolf? I think given our present cultural historical moment, um, we don't have to choose between being wolves or pigs. The world is not just wolves and pigs. And so to explore that middle ground, I mean, the, the good thing about stories about animals is that you get that distance. But the bad thing is that there's not a cross between a wolf and a pig the way we can have humans who belong to neither one group or the other, if you see what I mean. And that's a good good point, good starting point, a good prompt for conversation. It may also be a problem with the way that we've used anthropomorphism. Yes, there's a way in which it allows us to provide some sort of safe distance to discuss. But does it also reinforce some of the very binary and polarized thinking that we would like to trouble a little bit with kids? So how is it that we can use a book like this? It's really a mistake for the adults to, to uh, lecture kids and say, see, wolves are bad, pigs are good, or something like that. What you want to do is get the kids to explore what they're thinking. So you ask them questions, right? So, you know, you talk about the money middle, but you're sort of saying, well, do you really think the world gets divided into good people and bad people the way the book presents us? What do you think? And, you know, I, and you're talking to them, you sort of discuss things with them. It turns out that the kids are smart and we can mm-hmm. think that they don't understand all this stuff, but they do. You know, they don't have the same vocabulary. We do. We wouldn't discuss intersectionality, but they are able to formulate their own ideas, discuss them with each other. You know, this is a great book to use this way because the first thing you can do is say, do you believe the wolf? Mm-hmm. That's not what you used to think. When we read the story, you know, last year, who read the fairy tale or whatever, we all thought that the wolf was really bad. And now here's the wolf telling us he's really good. Do you believe him? And, you know, then 
try to get them to reflect on the very things that we've been talking about. So they're actually doing what we've been doing here. I mean, we've been sort of doing it for you as a sort of guide to thinking about the issues. But then I think the goal is to get the kids themselves to be able to recapitulate. That's the sort of dialogue discussion that we're having. Absolutely. Yeah. It also seems to me that one of the things that you can get kids to think about is, does it make sense to see an animal like a wolf as really bad because it eats pigs? That's what wolves do. They eat certain sorts of animals. Actually, so do we, right? And we don't think that we're so bad, at least. We eat pigs too. Yeah, we do. <laughs> Maybe we're big bad wolves ourselves, right? So, but I'm, I'm just saying that, you know, you can you can problematize this whole notion of, of there being evil people in the world by saying, but look, isn't it just their nature? And how can you blame a creature for acting in accordance with its nature? If they act and out of their own nature, what sort of judgments are we making if we say they're bad or good? I think another strategy for using this book with kids is to make connections to other fairy tales, because, of course, there are lots of famous villains, right? And we've been talking about uh, many of the ones that are animals. But uh, this retelling approach, I think um, asking a child to think of another villain and retell the story from their perspective so that they really can from the inside out, get an understanding of the way in which the teller informs the truth and informs our understanding. I think this is, in some ways, it seems like a really big and lofty rhetorical lesson to put a child through. But I think they love doing that kind of thing because, gosh, who more than children (laughs) spends their lives thinking about good and bad. And they know that they're complicated and they know that they're not all good and they know that they're not all bad. And so I think that they would really relish the opportunity to engage in an exercise like this where they sort of become a villain and and retell the story. I love that idea. I think it's a great exercise to have kids do. And that's one of the things um, that's so much fun about working with these books is that when you're done with a book, you can talk about the book, but then you have to think about how can we use what we've said to get them to be creative on their own? And your suggestion is, is really a wonderful one here. Why, thank you. <laughs> I think we have some recording of a family discussing this very book, which, as we mentioned, can be a challenging one to discuss, but not if you just start with a question like, whose story do you believe? Shall we listen to Abram and Simone? This is a story about a wolf who is trying to save his reputation. Yeah. This book sort of won me over. You said your heart was still with the pigs, but my heart was a little bit with the wolf. Yeah, me too now. Literally, he was just asking for a cup of sugar, and they are being really mean to him. They could have even lied and just said, We're in the, I'm in the middle of a meeting. I'm cleaning my bathroom. Sorry, come back like later. It's not wolf's fault. They have to eat to survive, too. I love that Abram and Simone, I mean, there's a conversation there about changing. She's changed her mind. This is really an illustration of the way that having open and frank conversations about this is how I feel about this character. How do you feel? It's just wonderful to hear her say, 
Yeah, me too. You know, and and to hear a child have um, have engaged in critical thinking and changing her mind. What I really liked about it is is not simply that she changes her mind, but she goes through a reasoning process to justify what she thinks now. So she explains why it is that the wolf isn't bad, right? That he just wanted a cup of sugar and they acted nasty. So she's, because one of the things that, that I say a lot is that it's, it's what you believe is as important as why you believe it. So that uh, when a kid is able to provide a rationale for their beliefs, right? They change their mind and they say, and here's why. That's really helpful because that's really is a component of critical thinking that we're able to see being developed by means of the discussion and the reflection on the story in this case. Children are, of course, the ones who ask that question more than anyone. And I think when, you know, Helen, I'm thinking about primetime, when we train uh, teams to to lead these kinds of discussions, we always come back to the probing question of why. It's so funny to be working with adults and to point out the power of that question when if you have been around a child, <laughs> you know that they're constantly asking it. Yeah, it's easy to say, to answer yes or no, do you think the wolf is a villain? But it, it's to ask why do you think the wolf is a villain? That's what prompts, as you said, the critical thinking. And the, frankly, the sort of assessment or evaluation of, of values as a context mm-hmm. for a character's decision. Hmm. Are there any final thoughts on this book or this whole notion of the goodies versus baddies? You know, I would make a link to another book that we use in primetime, which is also anthropomorphic, Why Mosquitoes Buzz in People's Ears. And one of the great things about that book is that it takes on that notion of, you know, who is the villain, who is to blame. And in the course of the story, each of the animals has a perspective, has a different reason why somebody is to blame. And it's all completely different. So um, I raise that just just to say that these anthropomorphic tales help us have these discussions about justice, what's fair, who's right, who's wrong, who's the villain, etc. I think one point that I would also like to include with is that there's always more than two sides to a story. Some people say that there are three, but there may even be more than three. And I, 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 one thing that I like to leave with when I, I'm discussing this book is that we should consider other perspectives mm-hmm. whenever we read something. We look beyond what the narrator says. That is it for this edition of Little Voices, Big Ideas. I'm your host, Sarah DeBacher. Thank you, Helen Taylor. Thank you, Tom Wartenberg. Thank you, Freddie Evans, as always, for sharing all of your insight. I hope that you all will join us for another episode in which we discuss the other side and even more of this notion of the importance of not having a single story. Our podcast is produced by Thomas Walsh, theme music by Sam Galband. Little Voices Big Ideas is brought to you by a grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities and Primetime Family Reading, a project of the Louisiana Endowment for the Humanities, in collaboration with WWNO 89.9 New Orleans.